Hello, you're listening to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast, presented by Brandon Elliott. This show will be going over all aspects of real estate investing and is intended to educate, motivate, and prepare you to take action on your first or next real estate investment. For more information, please visit BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy. What's going on, everyone, and welcome back to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Elliott. Super excited today. We have a special guest coming all the way from Hershey Park of uh, Pennsylvania area, which is uh, an awesome area. If you guys haven't visited, you got to go. I used to go there a lot when I was younger and love it. But nevertheless, Anna Kelly, what's going on? How are you? I'm doing great, Brandon. How are you? I'm doing awesome. It's such a privilege to have you on here. I mean, you got so much freaking credibility. You, what is it? 175 doors now? 16 yes. million in your portfolio? Yes. I love it. We just covered the whole motivation part right there. <laughs> we don't even need to go any further. But for anybody out there that doesn't know exactly who you are, do you mind just diving into who you are, what you do, and the power behind that? Sure. So my name is Anna Kelly. I am, like Brandon said, in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And I've lived here about 12 years. I moved from Texas and we moved to Pennsylvania to start a business for my husband. He's a chiropractor here in the Hershey area. And that kind of got me into investing in rental real estate. So we sold a big house in Texas and we're really starting over again. And I didn't know if I was going to get to keep my job. I was like on a trial work from home basis. So we bought a building for him to practice in and inherited some tenants, Brandon, that lived above the practice and behind the practice. And we thought, hey, this is a nice way to kind of get a little bit of extra cash and help cover that uh, building expense. And then we bought a four unit that we lived in. So we literally house hacked both my husband's business space and our home space and went from this huge, nice house in Houston to a little bitty two bedroom, four unit apartment and inherited tenants and were kind of thrown feet to the fire into becoming landlords. And so with that, it kind of started our excitement about rental real estate. And we learned how to update units and raise values and really make a good cash flow. And that kind of led me to where we are today, where I just retired from my six-figure income. I've worked a job for 20 years and five years ago really set out to replace my income with rental real estate. And that's when I got really serious about, about buying rentals. And now I'm up to about 175 doors actively, like I said, about a $16 million portfolio. And then I'm investing now passively in other apartment deals as well. Woo. It's so powerful. I love it. And you didn't even mention you're an Amazon bestseller author. You host a meetup group called REI Like a Girl. I love that. So much like women power right there to really motivate and educate other women just like yourself to be able to crush it in real estate. Absolutely. Um, it, it is my passion to help other women. And, and not that I'm not excited about teaching men too, but yeah, being yeah. a woman and being a mom and trying to juggle, you know, a career and a family and building a business, it, it's not easy. And, and it's hard to sometimes find balance or to have the confidence um, that you can do it and that you can, you know, pursue wealth and something you're passionate about while being you know, having responsibilities as as a wife and a mother, especially. So I'm just really excited to share with other women that it is possible. I'm living proof and to just get started. 
Yeah, no, I feel like the mindset behind you, obviously it stands out in comparison to so many other people, men and women, just mm-hmm. because you're really not allowing any excuses whatsoever. Like you're a full-time mom, you got four kids, which is a handful by themselves. <laughs> I know you got a bunch of sports and activities you got to run around to today. You're a wife, which is time consuming as well. And uh, house stuff, I'm sure. 20 years of uh in the financial space, corporate America, in uh, private banking, correct? You're a manager? I started out in private banking, and then I left Bank of America private banking to go to work for AIG Life Insurance Company. So I worked for AIG for the last 20 years in a product development unit. Okay, awesome. Yeah. So it's like, how many hats can this woman juggle? It's awesome. (laughs) You know, like you said, I think the key is when, when you're really motivated and you have a really big why and a, and a reason for doing it. And for me, you know, it was to work myself out of my full-time career and also because I worked for AIG. And any of you that are familiar with what happened in 08 and 09, when the economy crashed, AIG was one of the big companies that got $2 billion bailout by the U.S. government. I thought I was losing my job many times and told I was going to be losing my job several times. And, you know, by the grace of God, I stayed afloat. But I really thought I'm going to be losing my job. My husband has a startup business and I've got to figure out a way to support our family, raise the kids. And so I just was determined. And if you are determined, you can find time and you can find money and you can figure out a way to do deals. It's just a matter of staying determined, taking action every day and being resilient. I love that. I think also like clarity has to be somewhere in that mix of knowing exactly what you want out of it. Like, yes, you want to get out of the job space, but because of the uncertainty, the fear of like, hey, will I have this job tomorrow? So obviously you want to get out of that, but like the clarity of knowing, hey, this is exactly what I want and going after it. Have you always known that you you wanted to get into this huge commercial real estate atmosphere? Not really. Um, okay. You know, I knew I wanted to get into real estate and that I knew that my wealthy clients had real estate and That's that one day when I had money, I'd like to have it. But I never really thought, honestly, at that point that it was achievable initially until I already had money. And then when you kind of get a why and you're kind of pushed into, I've got to figure out another way to make money, then you kind of figure, okay, I have a little bit of desperation. There's a reason that I've got to do this. I'm, I'm good at it. It's really not that complicated. It's hard work, but it's really not that complicated, especially with rental real estate and especially with commercial real estate. You can pretty much decide what a building's worth very easily. You can figure out what it's going to be worth when you're done with it pretty easily. So there's nothing like it. And I've worked with a lot of different types of investments and there's nothing like real estate for truly exponentially um, shortening that time horizon to, to building wealth. And so I knew real estate was the path to help me to build wealth. It was just a matter of educating myself to figure out, you know, what type of assets to buy to get there. So now sure. that I've retired and I am financially free, you know, now I have a lot more time to dedicate to going after much, much bigger deals where initially for the first few years, I focused on primarily small multi-unit buildings, like four unit buildings, duplexes, and a couple of single family units. Now, do you recommend that path as well? I know certain people that have just gone like straight in and got like a 40, 50 unit complex right from the start. And uh, their mindset, you know, they weren't thinking small. They knew they wanted to be in that atmosphere. Mm -hmm. That was their niche. So they went after it. 
but a lot of people naturally start off the residential, either single family or residential multifamily. Yeah. Um, what is your opinion on first starting out? One thing that I think is really important for people to understand and that I would say to your your listeners, Brandon, is there is no one right way to do real estate. There just isn't. You know, there are people that are going to say single family is the only way and then other people that are small multis are the only way. And some people like you have to go straight to commercial. And the reality is there's so many different factors in, in each individual person that are going to make you more successful in a certain niche than others. And so, one of the things that I like to tell people in my REI Like a Girl meetups or people that I coach or just on Facebook is really evaluate who you are and where you are in life. Do you have a lot of money, but you don't have very much time? Or do you have no money? You think you don't have time, but you can make time. Yeah. So those are kind of two big questions. And then what is your personality like? Are you a go-getter naturally? Or are you the kind of person that's like, I want to make money, but I'm really not willing to be like to work more than 40 hours a week. So if you're driven and you're a go-getter and you can sacrifice time or money, then, you know, I'd say start getting into real estate. Then it's a matter of just figuring out what are you good at? You know, what are your skills? For some people, they're really good at numbers and they're really good yeah. at management or project management or oversight. And you might be better partnering with somebody or going after bigger deals that really take a financial mind where other people don't like finances. They don't understand finances. You don't understand the, the economy, but you're really great with your hands. You know, you might like to swing a hammer. You might like to do renovations. And so for someone that's more apt to use their hands and work and do active labor, then you might do well starting out with small rentals or some flips where you can put in the sweat equity and the time to really raise those values, increase the values and equity, then take that cash out to continue to invest. So there's just so many factors that are involved that, that make it a very personal decision for each person. I love that answer because it, it is so true. I mean, there's not like one right way for like everybody in total, but there is a, a right one that fits for each individual. So you right. do... You know, the, the very first thing I like to kind of help people out with is there's like 37 plus ways to be able to make money in real estate. So figuring out how many, going over just a little bit of education on each one, seeing exactly what it entails and what your resources need to be, money, time management, like all these other things, if you can pull it off and if you resonate with that strategy, then go all in on just that. But it doesn't need to be like the famous things out there with fix and flip or wholesaling or or whatever it is, you know? Right. And one thing that I would really say too, um, even though I have flipped multiple properties and I'm in the middle of a flip right now. So I yeah. do flips from time to time if it's the right flip in the right area. Sure. And I frankly want to spend the time doing it. It's, it's harder work than it is rentals. It's a job, right? Yeah. It I is a job. It is. And, you know, so, so flipping and, and wholesaling, they, they can be good ways to get into real estate, but you truly have to understand you are committing yourself to another full-time job to yes. build up the systems and processes that you really need in order to stay competitive on both the buy side and the sell side. So it's kind of switching careers, but it's not necessarily investing. Sure. Where I would really advocate that even if you like flipping and even if you like wholesaling and you do that, work really hard to renovate a property and then keep it as a rental. Yes. Cash out refi, you grab your money out tax-free so you yep. don't pay a capital gains on it. And then you've got a rental property bringing in passive income for you yep. every day while you sleep, literally. So yep. 
even if you want to flip, flip, but keep them as a rental. So I, I think everybody needs some rental real estate in their portfolio to just eventually help you to build up extra cash that buys you the time freedom to be able to focus on what you really find that you desire and love to do. Sure. No, I love that. And luckily, like how I first got started, I found out the burst strategy, fell in love with it, and then started running with it, exactly what you were just mentioning. And and it's funny because like I was just ignorant at the time. I didn't know really any other strategies. I was just like, I fell in love with this and I was like, well, you know, let's run with it. And thankfully, just after a dozen or so, I've been able to go full time and be able to kind of push more into a direction of whatever I'd like, which is awesome and could help the average person working at Starbucks doing the same thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is, there are so many ways to get involved in real estate, like you said. So even if you're working full time and you really don't know that real estate's exactly what you want to do, but you want to, you know, create some passive income, start educating yourself, you know, go on bigger pockets, listen to podcasts like yours, Brandon, go on some Facebook groups and just see how other people are getting into it. You know, you can, you can house hack into your very first rental property like what we did, you know, yeah. in Pennsylvania. And it wasn't glamorous, but, you know, we had our living expenses completely covered by three tenants. And we bought a building, we learned how to rehab it, and, you know, we increased the value of that property pretty significantly in a very quick amount of time. And then when we did outgrow it, and I had two more kids and we moved, we didn't buy a house. We rented another house so that I could save money to buy another rental property. Love it. So, you know, find your first house. You can get zero to three and a half percent down on your first house. If you buy a small multi-unit, like a three unit or a four unit, live in one unit, rent the other ones out. That's a quick way to kind of have some extra passive income and then figure out if you like it and if you don't, and then, you know, whether you want to grow. Yeah. I love that. So I do want to talk about the house hacking uh, in just a moment. But before we dive into that, has there been any education along the way? Like, was there mentors or somebody that kind of helped you out? Or was it all just, obviously, you're a very driven woman, to say the very <laughs> least. So I'm sure there was a lot of just like diving into all the books and whatever needed to really be able to get the education. But was there anybody in particular that really helped out? I'll say that I have learned a lot of lessons on the education space along the way. So okay. I didn't really have any training initially other than just I'm, I'm financially minded in general. So um, when I had my first child who just turned 16 a week ago, oh, love it. I had been so driven to, to climb up that corporate ladder. I wasn't thinking real estate at all at yep. that point. And I had this new baby and I just desperately wanted to be home with them. And so I thought, how do I figure out a way to, you know, replace my income and stay home with the kids? And all these Flip This House shows had just started to come out in, back in 2003. And they made it seem so easy. You go in, you buy a property, you put a little lipstick on the pig and you make forty, fifty, dollars $100,000. And we thought, bingo, let's yeah. flip the house. Yes. So with no training, no books, no nothing, <laughs> I contact a contractor, I found a property, I financed it the traditional route, no, yeah. no, no knowledge of private lenders or yeah. hard money lenders, and I bought a house to renovate. We made every mistake you can possibly make in purchasing oh, and <laughs> financing a property and over-improving a property, taking yeah. too long. Yep. Um, we lost one of our, my husband lost his job while we had that house under contract flipping. Oh. It's set on the market forever. Yeah. And we lost 
like 10 grand, okay, in, in like a year. And we were so jaded yeah. <laughs> from doing that. We thought we can't afford to lose 10 grand, you know, three or four times. So we thought, okay, flipping's not for us. And then I bought these couple of units that I told you about my husband's practice, an R4 unit. And at that time, after having two rental properties, I thought, you know, I'd love to get into bigger apartments and be able to hire a property manager. So I attended a webinar that was put on by a big group with a woman who was supposed to be a multifamily expert. I went to a conference in Dallas, was impressed with her. I hired her as a coach and ended up the woman was a complete fraud. She's Uh ended up in prison since then. She took many people for $10,000, $20,000 for coaching. It ended up being just a a terrible experience. And I was so jaded again from just coaching in general, from gurus that put out information that wasn't truthful and what didn't have integrity. Yeah. Um, And people who, you know, she was in real estate. She just wasn't a commercial broker like she claimed to be. Yeah. But I was so jaded from working with other people that at that point I was like, okay, the dream of big multi-units is gone. I'm not going to deal with people. I'm not going to go with conferences. I'm just going to do it on my own. And that wasn't the right mindset, but I was so jaded by it that, that I just kind of gave up on working with other people or going after bigger deals Okay. And said, I'm just going to have to bootleg this thing and figure yeah. out how to do it on my own. And so I did it on my own. And I never went to another real estate conference or seminar until early this year again. Wow. That is so powerful. <laughs> <laughs> so that really, that, that shows kind of like the, there's only so much that you can realistically learn out of a book or like YouTube or podcasts like this. Obviously there's tons of great content in here, but afterwards the implementation is really where you're going to learn the most, like hands on, you're going to know exactly, Hey, shouldn't do this next time. Or this worked out well. If we just go down this path a little bit more, it it will turn out successful. So what do you think was like your biggest learning curve? Maybe not even just on that project, but anything in general that might help out with the listeners. Sure. I did read some good books on on multifamily and on how to finance them correctly, how to evaluate them how to renovate properties. My husband watched a lot of YouTube and did most of the hands-on renovations. Okay. The beginning, Brandon, again, not that this is the right way necessarily or the best way to do it, but we did all of our own work. Like I painted apartments till two o'clock in the morning. I can't Uh, tell you how many times. You could not pay me today to paint. It's well worth hiring a painter. But, you know, the, the, the reality is passive income is really, I like to say it's built on the blood, sweat and tears of active income. So when you start off with no money, like we did, you really don't have much of an option other than to just actively get involved, learn it by doing it. And then eventually finding people that might trust you enough to partner with you, you know, on a deal. So we learned by doing, I think the, the biggest learning curve was just figuring out how to continue to grow every time I ran out of money. So every time we would raise the values of a property, we would cash out refi. We would try to use that as a down payment on another one. Deals are not that hard to find if you're flexible in what you buy. Like I wasn't married to, I'm just a single family house investor, or I'm just a duplex investor or a four unit investor. I'm a cash flow investor. So if I can find a property that I know I can make it worth more in cash flow, I'm going to go after it. But my biggest issue was I ran out of money. And so 
Should I have gone and partnered with people earlier? Probably so, Brandon. Okay. But I so I had to really start learning how can I get creative and buy pro uh, properties off market with creative financing. So that was my biggest learning curve was learning how to negotiate with sellers to convince them to sell me their properties without going through a bank. And once I kind of got the confidence to do it and did it a few times, it helped me to grow that much larger so that then I was that much more attractive to banks. And now it's easy for me to get financing on anything that I want. Oh, I love that. It's so powerful. Like the more you do of something, the confidence builds up and you're just unstoppable. Right. True. So let's talk about house hacking for a second. So that was your first house hacking was your first, you're putting the blood, sweat and tears into it. Just for anybody out there that doesn't know exactly what house hacking is, do you mind just diving into that exactly? Sure. So basically, instead of living in a property and going out and buying a different property as an investment, you buy a property as an investment that you intend to live in first before you keep it long-term as a rental. And the benefits to that, Brandon, primarily are if you are buying a property as an investor, most banks are going to require at least 20 to 25% down on whatever you buy. And, you know, a four unit apartment building in my area was like 225000 to $250,000. So you're going to have to come up with, you know, 40 to 50 grand or more to even start your first um, investment property. Just to get your foot in the door. That, just yeah. to get your foot in the door. And yeah. that doesn't include the rehab costs or the closing yep. costs or anything like that. So the beauty of house hacking is that most, um, even traditional lenders that are that are backed by, let's say, FHA or the USDA has rural housing financing yeah. or VA, you can get into your own home, your first home or your only home with very low down payments. And so for HUD financing, for example, or I'm sorry, USDA financing, yes. there are areas in Palmyra, Pennsylvania, in Hershey, Pennsylvania, in kind of rural areas yeah. where you can get in with literally no money down. You only have to pay closing costs. And sometimes you can roll those closing costs in if it's your primary home only. So you could buy a single family home, but why not buy a duplex or a four unit where you're living in one unit and then your tenants are paying your mortgage, your insurance, and most of your cost of living. And these programs allow you to buy one to four unit buildings as your primary residence and allow you to count that rental income toward qualifying for the mortgage. So I really recommend most people, unless you have a very large family and you're just not willing to do it, yes. swallow the pride. Don't think you have to buy a big house just to keep up with the Joneses yep. and live in a little bitty four unit, buy it with almost no money down and learn to be a landlord with those other units that you're, you know, that are surrounding you in the same building that you live in. Yeah, there, there is so much power from house hacking, living in one unit. And, and like you said, I mean, residential is technically four units and under. So if you can get the, the amazing financing that's offered out there traditionally, with anywhere from zero to 3% down, which is nothing instead of putting out, forking out 50 grand in your particular situation. You know, there, there's so much power, there's so much leverage that you can really be able to transform and repeat this process over and over. So exactly with the financing owner occupied, you only need to live there for one full year before you can actually sell it or 
I was going to say the exact same thing. Yes, the banks will make you a test that you are buying this as your primary residence and that you must live there at least a year because they've caught on to people living in a four unit, saying they're going to own it, being there for a month or two, and then moving on to the next one and the next one and the next one. So, you, you know, you can't commit mortgage fraud. You have to commit that, yes, I'm really going to live there. And then you just live there. And, you know, anybody can live anywhere for a year. Yeah. Um, you know, I am <laughs> proof. Yeah. And, and we did it. We actually did it twice. So we lived in ours for a year and a half, got pregnant, was having a third kid. We're outgrowing the first one. And we tried to move into a bigger one, another four unit that we could convert the attic into more space to allow us to, buy, you know, house hack another unit. And then we, you know, plan to live there for a couple of years and then and then move into a single family. I love that. There, I love the mindset behind it and uh, and not getting all materialistic or like all bougie thinking, like really having your eye on the prize, knowing that it's one year and, you know, this is going to help us compound this uh, success and uh, start building up. Absolutely. And I think that that's so important. There's so much pressure for young people, especially to go out and buy your first house. You know, you get married. When are you going to have a house? When are you going to have kids? And people just end up paying way too much for houses that they really can't afford. And then you have to slave away at your job just to pay the debt on that mortgage and the cost of maintenance and all of that kind of stuff. Or if you just say, you know what, let me live in something smaller and more economical and do this for a couple of years, you can save up the money that you need for the next one to do 20% down and be well ahead of everybody else within just a couple of years and be able to buy even nicer home because when you do get ready to move, you can count the income from that four unit that you house hacked toward buying your property. And oftentimes a four unit building can pay your entire mortgage on your new house once you have it. Yeah, I love it. I mean, we house hack as well. And, and the power behind it, just renting, not being liable for anything, but having our rent from house hacking so extremely cheap and affordable, it, it just makes it such a win-win situation because you can build up for something bigger that you can right. put your money to work in. And the reality is it's, it's the easiest way to get started, Brandon. If you don't already own a home, you can get in with almost no money down. And, and there's very few other investments out in the real world, whether that be currencies or stocks or mutual funds, anything where you can get in with almost no money down. It's crazy. I love it. Let's talk about inheriting tenants because I've done this. I've done this a few times now and typically it doesn't work out well for me. So I don't know if I'm just like, I'm the one and only, but from my understanding, a lot of people actually don't have the best results getting either distressed properties or even if they're in great shape, the tenants that come along with them. So would love to hear your personal experience. So, you know, I've had tenants consistently for 12 years and right now I have 175 tenants. So I have a few that I've inherited and most of the ones that I've inherited have been pretty good, but I've had a few that I've inherited that are a nightmare. And in fact, I just evicted one last month. I've only thankfully had to have five evictions, knock on wood, in 12 years because I've gotten really, really, really good at screening my tenants. And I I will let something sit vacant before I'll rent to somebody that has no money, no credit, evictions, you know, criminal background. I'm just not going to do it. So if you are not really good and really picky about who you're going to rent to, you're going to have more and more of those nightmare tenants. Um, When you inherit someone, most of the time, (laughs) unfortunately, most landlords I think I can actually use that without it being an exaggeration. Most landlords do not screen tenants well. And when you buy a building, the tenants, number one, aren't happy. They instantly don't like you. They think you're going to raise their rent. 
They cause all kinds of problems. They make all kinds of complaints. And sometimes it's hard to get them out. So yes, inheriting tenants can be a pain. And I think the key is when you buy a property, the very first time that that lease is up for renewal, you let them know well in advance, okay, I'm your new landlord. I'm going to raise your rent. These are the problems I have with you. Either you straighten up or I'm not going to renew your, your lease. And yeah. if they don't pay rent the next month, you immediately go to a, for a file for eviction. You don't wait. You don't try to be the nice guy because the reality is you will be taken advantage of. And that's a hard balance. I mean, I'm a good person. I care about people. I have compassion for people. And I do have a few people that I have worked with because I knew they weren't just milking the system. But more times than not, when I've tried to be nice and let them pay late consistently and take on their burdens rather than telling them you've got to figure out a way to pay me. I've gotten burnt and lost money. And so you want to be a good person. You want to be good to your tenants, but you've also got to basically let them know that you own this property. You have certain expectations. They will follow those expectations or they will not live there. And um, once you get kind of tough with them, and especially for me as a woman, it's, it's been a little bit harder because some of my toughest um, tenants are men who think they can just kind of, you know, tell me what to do and, and boss me around. Or if you're younger and you just have to kind of basically say, look, buddy, you know, this is my property, yeah. this is the rules. And if you don't like it, you know, you can move and I'll find somebody else. And once you have that, you know, confidence and that mindset that this is your investment and you don't have to put up with much then you, you don't feel as bad as getting rid of, uh, by getting rid of tenants and finding people that are going to treat your property and you well. Yeah, that, it's so good because uh, every time, like deep down in your heart, you naturally like want to help out other people. Like mm-hmm. I get that. And just like you said, every time that I have personally uh, worked with people or whatever the situation is, it, it typically comes back to bite me in the ass. And uh, it's just one of those things. So uh, moving forward, I was going to say, moving forward, uh, I typically don't actually like to purchase properties with tenants already in place. I like to put it in the contingencies to have the tenants out. In your current situation, buying uh, you know 175 units, it's a little different. You're going to want to have, obviously, a, a good majority of those filled. It's always a value add plan that people are doing. So you don't want it all vacant, but... Uh, but. Yeah, I typically don't want a property to be vacant. So... I, you know, if, if it's a single family house and you're going to go in and you're going to update sure. it, or maybe it's a four unit, for example, like I had one that was a four unit and one unit was really bad and the rents were less than half of market. The same person lived there for over 20 years. They were heavy, heavy smokers. Good. The smoke was getting into the other units. And for that one unit, I said, you're going to have to have that person move there a month to month before we close. But other than that, you know, for the most part, if the, if the rents are fairly close to where they need to be, let's say within $100, $125 of market once I fix them up, I'd rather those tenants stay if they're good, strong paying tenants. Yes. And I just make sure um, that as soon as their month to month is up, that I'm basically saying on a unit by unit basis, I either want you to stay or I need you to leave because I'm going to renovate that unit, or I'm going to slowly get your rent up. And I've even like stair-stepped rent. So I come in and I say, listen, I know you're scared that we're going to raise your rent. We're not going to bump it all in one day, but we are going to get you up to the market rent. um, And we'll allow you to do it in, you know, a three to four month increment. You can either choose to give me 30 days notice today and you can move, 
or I'm going to start raising your rents and here's your new lease and you have to sign if you want to stay here. And most of the tenants that I really don't want to stay, I'll just raise their rents higher and faster. Mm. And, and I've even paid people to leave. Yeah, um, I, I've tried been, doing that. They wouldn't even, <laughs> I couldn't even get that far. <laughs> it's been rare. But overall, you know, you're buying, when you're buying multifamily and multi-units, you're buying an income stream. So you want the tenants to be there because you don't want them all to vacate at one time. So no, no. it's just in the type of investing that I've now moved toward, it's very rare that I ask for them to be vacant. Okay, gotcha. I love that. So let's talk um, more towards just the big, huge multifamily in general. Uh, I do want to hear in just a little bit, like where your plans and goals are for the future, just so we can all get more inspired and see how maybe the listeners can do something to add value back to you. But but what would you recommend to somebody that does have some experience and uh, they've done several deals, but more in the residential side, and now they're looking to kind of flap out their wings and, and really start growing into the to the big dog space, to the multifamily scene? I think kind of going back to what we talked about, about really knowing who you are, what you want and why you want it is really important first. So some people are like, oh, I want to own a hundred unit building. I don't want to do another single family building. Yeah. And, you know, they think, oh, in, in six months, I'm going to own a hundred unit building. And so what's it going to take to get there? How are you going to do it? And how much time are you really willing to sacrifice of your day? and of your health and of your time away from your family in order to get that, you know? So I would say, figure out why you think you have a goal of going into larger multifamily, how much time and money you are willing to put aside, you know, to, to move into that space, to educate yourself, to, to network, to find partners, to find deals. Um, and then, you know, commit to, to growing toward that without having to get, you know, say, I'm only going to buy multifamily. Because the reality is multifamily right now is really high priced. It is. Um, there's something called a market cycle or an economic cycle or a, a building cycle. Um, some people like to call it where in certain points in the economy, prices uh, of assets become really overheated and hard to find and not as profitable. And at other points of market cycles, like during a recession, your prices are really low. It's easier to find properties, but you might have problem financing. And right now, there's a lot of people going after large multifamily assets, and a lot of them are so overpriced and so competitive, similar with looking for single family house flips, where you've got so much competition all of a sudden that it's hard to necessarily find a deal. And so I wouldn't pigeonhole yourself to say, stop doing what I'm doing and go full-fledged into going after large multifamily. But add educating yourself about the multifamily space and networking with other people that are already doing it to what you're already doing. And then, you know, as you start educating yourself on the differences between multi-units and singles or large multi-units and small multi-units, then start going to networking meetings and start, you know, getting on Facebook groups and reading books about multifamily and just slowly start um, educating yourself and committing. Maybe you spend an hour or two every single day reading up on larger multifamily or listening to podcasts specific to multifamily. Yeah. And you spend an hour or two a day networking with other people that are in the space and asking them questions about, you know, the financing and taking down the deals and how they're run. And then start spending some time reaching out to brokers and talking about you know, properties and how they're valued and, and see if you can find someone new that's willing to spend some time with you to teach you a little bit 
Um, so it, it's not realistic for most people to just take a leap to buying a couple single family houses and suddenly being able to buy and take down and manage a, a large multifamily asset. But you do it in chunks and you commit to growth. Um, and you commit to education, and eventually you'll get to a place where it's easier to do that or partner with other people that are doing it and find a way to add value to them so that you get in on a deal and have a little piece of that pie while you're learning until you start growing enough money and enough assets that you can start contributing more to those deals and starting to focus on those deals 100%. I love that. That's that's so good. The prices are very inflated right now. And Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, the education is the the most crucial part. So just dive into the education, build the relationships Mm -hmm. and see what kind of value you can bring to the table to get into a deal yourself, to have a little bit of skin in the game. Right to be able to see behind the scenes of how this is actually taking place. Right. So you're doing the GP side and sponsorship side. Do you mind breaking down the difference and kind of just the different roles that take place within the multifamily? Sure. So when you're looking at larger multifamily assets, you obviously need a lot more money to take down those assets. So let's say where you're buying a four unit for maybe, you know, let's say it's $250,000 or $240,000 you could probably figure out a way to come up with $50,000 and buy that property on your own or JV with one person and maybe you put 25 grand in and they put 25 grand in. Um, But when you're looking at, you know, 100 units going for $100,000 a door, you're talking about millions of dollars that you've got to be able to um, qualify for a loan, come up with the down payment, come up with enough money to operate that building and reserves in case things go wrong like they always do and come up with uh, money for renovations. And so it just needs a lot more capital than what most people can, especially starting out, can um, afford to to do. Now, if you're independently wealthy and you're just starting out, you could probably buy a small multi-unit on your own. But for the most part, the bigger deals are really all about networking, relationships, and partnerships. And Mm -hmm. so Typically, you've got someone like myself who's an operator who knows how to, you know, go in, update units, raise rents, lower expenses, you know, create um, a more profitable building that's then worth a lot more money. Then you've got somebody who's going to be the um, asset manager who's going to oversee your property managers and he's going to look at the finances and make sure that, you know, the business plan is being executed. So, along with needing more assets, most people that buy large apartment buildings, you're buying them not just for the cash flow, but to raise the value of that property so that in a few years you can refi it or you can sell it and make significant chunks of money. And so there's typically a a, a rehab intensive or operation um, rehab, if you will, involved in a multifamily property. So you've got to have multiple people involved in the operation side I'm in the financial side. Then you need people who can qualify for the loan. So where single family, your credit is really important. Like you're not going to be able to go and get a loan unless you've got really good credit. And you do have to have a certain, you know, debt service coverage ratio and um, be able to qualify. Same with some small multi-units. When you get into the large commercial properties, you're primarily um, being evaluated by the banks based on the asset and the cash flow that it's going to generate. So your credit is important where some people say, oh, in commercial, your credit's not important anymore. Your credit is really important. 
And also your net worth and your liquidity are important to the banks, secondarily to the value of that property. So they're going to underwrite very heavily based on the operations and the income of that, that asset. But they're also going to look for all of the general partners together to have a net worth equal to the loan on that property and liquidity of at least 10% of the value of that loan. So if you're going to take down a $10 million property, you're probably going to need about $3 million in cash. And that means your partners are going to need to have about a $3 million net worth in order to buy the property and qualify for the loan. And at least, let's say, um, a few hundred thousand dollars in, in liquid cash. So you need partners who are, who are um, credit worthy, who have liquidity, who have some net worth um, to, to partner with you on these, on these ventures. And then you need somebody that can reach out to passive investors to try to raise money from those passive investors if you're syndicating those deals and to teach them about these types of investments and to uh, communicate with them what you're doing and, and make sure that they get paid every month if they decide to invest in the property. So those are kind of the, the main roles um, of the partners when you're dealing with a, a large multifamily takedown. I love that. I've never actually heard that uh, explained so detailed like, like you just did. That's great. So as far as the assets go with the general partners, they're going to want to see at least equal to the value that you're purchasing of assets and then also 10% of uh, liquid. Yes. Okay. Do you know where they come up with the, those numbers or that's just always been around like that? That's their I think that's basically just the standard. You know, if you're going to borrow $5 million, they want to yeah. know that between the partners, you're, you're all worth at least $5 million because sure. if for some reason that they couldn't, you know, couldn't just um, cover the loan by selling the asset. They want to be able to go after, you know, the, the principles. Now, there is something called non-recourse financing that when you're dealing with agency loans for these big um, complexes, you sign on non-recourse loans if you can get them. And basically, they agree that if the asset goes wrong, they won't go after you personally as partners unless you've committed what one of the bad boy carve-outs, what they call. So if you've committed fraud um, or if you've just totally neglected the property, then even though those loans are non-recourse, they could still come after the partners to make themselves whole for the loan. And so that's why they want the partners to have um, some, some high net worth. And it's also a reason that it's, it's very uh, unlikely that most people can ju- just jump right into doing you know, yeah. large multifamily properties or large commercial properties completely on their own. But you can come in as a partner, contribute toward you know, that net worth and that liquidity requirement. I love that. That's so good. Um, so would you recommend, I know you already gave a, a bunch of different uh, recommendations, you know, getting educated first, um, finding your value added to somebody else. Would you recommend somebody first getting started as the money partner if they had it to kind of be able to get their, their foot in the door and, and see behind the scenes? You mean for somebody that has a lot of cash right now, but they haven't done the investment? Yeah, like somebody that's just has money sitting in the bank right now. Yeah, I think there's there's two different answers to this. So one is getting involved in, as a general partner, and one is getting involved in a pa- as a passive limited partner. Sure. So getting involved as a general partner, typically if you've got a lot of cash and you can be um, that that person that signs on the loan or the key principal and have some liquidity so that you can qualify for those loans. If you're willing to put your 
your assets and your liquidity at risk by signing on the loan, that can be a great way to partner with someone who has operation experience but doesn't have net worth. So if you're already a high net worth individual looking to take down a larger multifamily or even doing it on a smaller scale, you know, with a small multifamily unit, maybe it's a 10 unit property instead of, you know, a hundred unit property, that can be a great way, you know, to partner and bring the money to the table and partner up with someone that has the experience to operate it. If you're looking as a limited partner, like let's say you've got twenty-five dollars to $50,000, maybe up to $100,000, that's probably not going to be enough to, to add a whole lot of value as a general partner on a larger multifamily, yeah. but you could invest passively. And what you could do is you could go to an operator and say, listen, I know you're looking for passive investors to invest in your apartment deal. What can I do to, if I, if I invest passively and I give you twenty-five dollars to $50,000 and I'm an, a limited partner, can I shadow you for a week? Can I walk the property and do due diligence with you when, that proper, when the banks are coming and doing, doing the third parties or when you're walking the units? Or can I help you do asset management? Can I look at the reports every month and you walk me through, you know, how these numbers panned out and teach me and I'm willing to put the reports together or do some grunt work for free yeah. in addition to investing your deal so that you can teach me the operation side while I'm, while I'm learning as a limited partner. So I think that that's something that, that most operators would be willing and, and happy to have somebody come on board and, and help you do some grunt work. I love that. That is so good. It's the value add right there. Just trying to get, get your foot in the door, add value back to the other person, build up the relationship and it can create a win-win situation. Yeah. What I wouldn't recommend, and I wasn't sure if this is what you're asking, Brandon, in terms of, I wouldn't recommend somebody try to get start, get started in multifamily by raising capital. I know there's a lot of different people that, that teach that and that say, hey, come in and you can just start helping raise capital. Yep. For you. But there's a lot of regulations involved, both at a securities and exchange commission level yep. and from a state regulatory standpoint, um, where you really need to be a registered investment advisor in order to raise funds for deals, unless you're a partner on that deal in some significant capacity. And there's, there's some confusion and there's some gray areas right now as to whether and how much money you can raise and how often you can do it if you're not truly an operational general partner. So I would just say tread very carefully if you think that you're going to jump in to, by raising money, talk to an attorney, talk to an SEC attorney, and yep. make sure that, that you're doing things in the right way. I would much rather see people learn nuts and bolts about the operations and try to get in that way than to start out as a money raiser, unless your career path is as, a, as an investment advisor who just wants to be someone who raises money for deals. Yep. I love that. Yeah. So that's the disclosure right there for everybody listening. Talk to your CPA, talk to your lawyers, make sure that you are doing this legally, ethically, all to the uh, guidelines and regulations out there because there, there is a lot of fine uh, gray areas right now that people out there are not probably most likely going in within the lines, kind of weaving yeah. in and out. So, and I think um, it's it's one of those areas where there's the most regulation behind it. So, um, oftentimes, I think most people are good people that are not trying to commit fraud, sure, but yeah. they just don't. You don't know what you don't know, and so the danger of just taking a course or going to a a weekend seminar and saying I'm going to create a business model out of this is that there's just not enough information oftentimes until you really spend some good 
time figuring out the nuts and bolts of, of what all's involved. So, you know, how you can solicit, who you can talk to about a deal, what you can post on Facebook, all those things really have to do with what type of deal it is and what type of SEC registration exemption you have for that deal. And so there's just so many nuances that are really important that you learn about before you, you know, start down that path. That if money raising is one of those things where it's harder to just jump in and learn it, because if you do it wrong once, it could have severe consequences. Where yeah. when you're starting on the active side, you know, you can mess up and still have some some leeway. And unless you're committing fraud, you know, you can make a whole lot of mistakes and and find your way out of them without being in legal trouble. I love it. It's so true. It's really good stuff right there. <laughs> Anna, so where do you see yourself in the future? Like you've hit so many goals. I'm sure that the average person out there would, that would be like their peak ultimate goal. <laughs> you've already hit those goals. So where do you see yourself in the future? What are you, what are you trying to accomplish moving forward? So Brandon, I, I'm probably going to have an answer that's not going to be what you expect. I am very driven and I'm very goal oriented, obviously, in order to get to where I have been. Yes. But my goal really was get to the point where I could be home with my kids by the time they're home from school and get to the point of financial freedom. Yep. And when I retired from my job in May, I was able to replace my income and significantly more income after that. Um, so I am at a place with a financial freedom where if I don't want to work another day, I truly don't have to work another day. And I'm just, I'm so thankful and so blessed to be here yes. um, at this point. And it doesn't mean that my drive is gone or that I don't have more goals to reach. But my main priority right now is as to be a good mom, the next few years I have with my kids to really pour into them. And really for my evenings, from the point that my kids are home from school, I am just wife and mom and I am no longer like real estate entrepreneur, real estate investor, unless an emergency comes up. You know, I'm still asset managing. I got to call a little earlier for my property manager. So I still have to take care of things. But my goal is to no longer sacrifice my time with my family to build and drive to a financial goal, but to create my financial goals around the reality that I've built this lifestyle where I can focus primarily on my children and being a wife and mom, and secondarily with my extra time while they're in school to do what I'm passionate about. Yeah. And so... Um, I know not a lot of people have an opportunity to be at that place, but you can be. I'm living proof. Man. And I've, I've only been in that place, you know, really for three, two and a half months. So yeah. this summer, um, I traveled. I, I did buy three apartment buildings, um, yeah. one in my own portfolio and two, two JV um, assets. And I'm still growing. So I've created a company with one of my JV partners, and we are going after much larger multifamily properties locally. But I no longer have this goal that says, you know, I have to be at 500 doors by the end of next year and I'm going to do whatever it takes to find those deals to, you know, sun up to sun down until I have that much money or that many assets because the money isn't what drives me anymore. It's doing what I'm passionate about. So my goal really, the way that I set goals now, instead of just setting my goal based on a certain dollar amount or a certain number of units or a position that I want to achieve or what my competition is doing, I'm now committed to growing. So I'm going to grow my multifamily business. I'm going to buy assets that make sense. Yep. As many of them as I can take down that really are strong assets for myself and my, my partners and be really picky about the types of assets that I buy. 
because of where we are in the market cycle and yep. because I can be picky. And so I've time blocked my day. You know, I, I spend an hour of day where I'm just, I'm networking. I'm spending time calling brokers, trying to find off market deals. I'm spending an hour a day where I am building relationships for investors. I'm building, uh, you know, I, I time block multiple pieces a day where I say, I'm going to grow in my ability to network. I'm going to grow in my ability to raise money. I'm going to grow in my ability to analyze deals. And I'm going to figure out how to outsource the things that I don't have time to do. So I'm focused on growth and scaling. And by doing all of those daily activities every single day, focused on those areas, I know I'm going to grow in a, in a way that's sustainable, yes. where I am going to achieve greater success because I'm doing it every day and focused on it. But I don't have a number goal that I have to reach anymore. I love it. Take a breath. I mean, <laughs> you, uh, you've been working for the last 20 years and pulling this off. So it's like, you know, finally, uh, you can you can sit down and relax for two seconds. I mean, yeah. the, the amount of work that you still do in an everyday basis is probably uh, more than you know somebody on a on a their busiest day. But yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's awesome. And in the next couple of years, like where your kids are at with their age, it's very crucial years. So you hit your goal. Now you can uh, spend time with the family a little bit and yeah. be the be the mother and the. Um, the wife as well, which is awesome. Yeah, um, and my son just turned sixteen, so he his yeah. goal is to be a real estate multimillionaire. You know, so we are starting to teach him. So we're spending an hour and a half a night going through fundamentals of owning properties and being a landlord and raising money. So you know, we're we're all in real estate. It's just it's just kind of compartmentalizing our time, you know, toward growth rather than killing ourselves to to meet an arbitrary number. Yeah, systemize it, make it better, and then start scaling it even bigger. I love it. I, I really do appreciate you so much for jumping on here. And oh, thank you. Um, at the very, very least, we got to definitely have you back on here again because this is really just the intro of uh, getting a little <laughs> bit of a taste of you um, to be able to you know, give back to the listeners so much, so much amazing content that you have. Thank so, you. I'd be more than happy to join you any other time, Brandon. I love it. Um, so what can the listeners do to give back to you? You just gave, you know, an hour of your time, which is our biggest asset. So, um, you know, is there anything that the listeners could do to actually give back to you? I just say I have a Facebook community. It's called Creating Real Estate Wealth That Lasts with Anna REI Mom. And it's just a great place to come in to ask questions, um, to kind of network with other people, especially people that are just kind of starting out and want to understand how to build their portfolio the right way feel free to jump on and join that group. Also, you mentioned I do have a book called um, Resilience Turning or Setback into a Comeback. If y'all are interested in that book, uh, you can find me on Facebook or email me at info at reimom.com and I'll be happy to send you a copy. Ooh, I love that. That's awesome. Uh, is there any other platforms that people can get a hold of you? Primarily my email and my Facebook group. Okay, perfect. Good, good, good. Awesome. So much great value. I'm so excited for this one. Uh, the listeners are going to have a little frenzy for it. A lot of great content people are going to be able to take action on. So I do appreciate you so much. As Thank always, you. if you guys want to get a hold of me, you can find me at brandonelliotinvestments.com. Otherwise, Instagram, Brandon Elliott Investments or facebook.com, Brandon Elliott, R-E-I. 
With that being said, make sure you definitely hit that subscribe button so you get the newest episode every single Monday for Rockstar episodes just like this one. And also leave a review. Let me know what you guys think about this. If you want some other people on there, let me know who. And if you guys have any questions, as always, reach out. We'd love to help you get started, get educated, motivated, and prepared to really take action in real estate to see what it's done for, for us has been amazing. So, and appreciate you so, so much. I really do. You're the best. And until uh, next time, guys, everybody stay blessed. This has been another episode of Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by Brandon Elliott. For more information, please visit brandonelliotinvestments.com. Also, please don't forget to like, share, and leave a comment below. Thanks again for joining. Until next time, God bless.